Good morning. The Lord be with you. Thank you. My name is Andrea Reinhardt, and I'm part of the College of Preachers here at the table. And essentially, the College of Preachers is a group of people made up of the, the priests the, and other, just other people among us in the church who share the role of preaching. And I was reflecting this week how special of a practice that is in our church. It's maybe easy to take for granted, but the fact that we really hold to the proclamation of good news being the work of all of us. And this is one way that we embody that proclamation of good news. So I'm thankful for the privilege today for that value in our church and for this opportunity to proclaim good news among us this morning. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. The text, the first Samuel text this morning says, this will be the judgment of the ruler who will rule over you. Your sons he will take for himself in his chariots and in his cavalry to run before his chariots. He will set aside for himself commanders, some for his plowing, some for his reaping. They'll make his furnishings of war. They'll make furnishings for his chariot. Your daughters he will take to be apothecaries and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive orchards. He will take and give to those who serve him one-tenth of your grain, the tithe of your grain, and of your vineyards he will take and give to his eunuchs and those he enslaves. And you all, you shall be his slaves. And this part wasn't in our reading today, but I want us to land on this. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. Dear friends, how deeply we need to grapple this morning with the reality of how our desires are undoing us. But ungrate your teeth, unclench your fists, and rest your dug-in heels. Beloved, Let's begin by receiving the generous love of God poured out in the midst of our self-destruction, love that carries us into the abundant goodness of the kingdom of God. And let's discern together how we can participate in this new creation we're being born into. When I was preparing for this sermon this week, it occurred to me, some texts, you know, we read them and we're preparing for teaching or preaching, and it's like kind of like getting punched in the face a little bit. Like, what am I going to do with this? <laughs> but this week when I read this text, it just immediately resonated. It seemed like this was so relevant, so easy to connect with. I feel like this season I've been in touch with so much of the brokenness of human decisions and impact. This week I was thinking about the record heat in Phoenix, that there have been over 20 days of temperatures above 110, that insurance companies are pulling out of Florida because of the devastation of hurricanes, that there are air quality alerts because of wildfires in Canada, historic flooding in Vermont, and that climate change continues in the midst of our failures to make meaningful changes. I listened to the story of Tori Bowie, who was an Olympic gold medalist, a sprinter who'd been one of the fastest women in the world at one point. And at 32, she was found dead in her home, eight months pregnant because of complications of childbirth, highlighting once again that we continue to fail to deal with the subtle and far-reaching effects of racism, because Tori Bowie is a black woman, where, and, and the maternal health crisis where black women currently face death rates almost three times what white women face in pregnancy. I thought about how Father Matt preached last week about how much mammon 
is a God for us in our lives, how we make, make use of one another uh, through the logic of mammon. All of these things, and I think it doesn't have to be this way. We could choose differently. Why don't we ever change? Why don't we choose differently? And I think this First Samuel te- text is such a poignant reflection of that reality. Here in First Samuel, Samuel's getting old. The people know that he's not going to lead them forever, and they don't want his sons. His sons don't walk in his ways. And I want to unpack this a little, because some of us are pretty familiar with this text of the people asking for a king. And it can be a little bit reduced to, like, this is a text where we shouldn't keep up with the Joneses, or we shouldn't give in to peer pressure. It can become a text about that. But I don't want us to miss that the language of Egypt is found throughout this entire text. The language of slavery in Egypt for the people who have been delivered from that slavery is throughout almost every verse of this text. The people say that they want a king. Well, actually, when Dr. Gaffney translates it, she translates it ruler because that's, you know, it's, the word is melek. It can refer to a king, it can refer to rulers, it refers to Pharaoh. But this word uh, then becomes like king very frequently in the Old Testament. And at the beginning, we have to remember at the beginning of Exodus, it says that Joseph, uh, you know, Joseph comes in power, and it says that the Pharaoh who knew Joseph, who brought him into power, had died, and that there came a new Melech into power, a new king in power who didn't know Joseph. And he felt threatened about the Hebrews, and then put them, you know, thought, we're going we're gonna to oppress them. This is what we're going to do. We'll make them slaves, and that's going to keep them from threatening our power, right? So the people come into oppression under a king who didn't know Joseph, under a Melech who didn't know Joseph. We see the language of horses and chariots in the Samuel text. And we should remember the horses and chariots that were part of Egypt's army. And that other places in the law, kings are warned, don't take on too many horses and chariots because you will lead the people back into Egypt. Horses and chariots remind us of the language of Egypt. And then this this whole section about the king that the people are asking for. This is the kind of judgment, Dr. Gaffney says, of the ruler who will rule over you. And then she gives this list of all the things that that will typify this type of rule that this person will have. This word judgment is the word mishpat, which is the word justice. We often equate that with the word justice, like in Micah, where it says do justice. We all know that verse, right? When verses talk about people perverting justice, they talk about um, Samuel's sons were perverting justice. That's the word mishpat. And so what Yahweh is saying is the type of mishpat that this king is going to give you, the logic of the rule, the logic of the justice that this king is is going to give you is going to be that he will take your sons to be in front of his chariots, the chariots of Egypt, the chariots of Egypt. He will take them to be commanders. He will make them plow and reap and make instruments of war. In other words, your sons are going to be his war machine. He will take your daughters. He will take the best of your field. He will take one-tenth of all of these things. In other words, he will take the tithe of your fields and the work of your hand, the tithe, the one-tenth that you're to give to Yahweh, that ruler's going to take it. And at the very end, to top it off, you will be his slaves in Egypt. So when we hear Yahweh saying that the people are rejecting him as a king, let's hear the people saying, we don't want the rule that, Samuel, that you're telling us that we should have. We want to go back to Egypt. We accept the mishpat of Egypt. We accept the rule of Egypt. We accept being slaves. And even in verse 18, where it says, in that day you'll cry out and Yahweh will not answer you, this is language evocative of Egypt. 
that word cry out is za'ak, which is also early in Exodus, when it says that the people are being oppressed and the king comes um, and enslaves them, the people groaned in their slavery and cried out, they za'ak, the people of Israel under slavery za'ak. And Yahweh heard their groaning and remembered his covenant. It's a circling back that Yahweh has rescued them in the midst of their, their za'ak and now they want to return to slavery. And their za'ak might rise again, but Yahweh is not going to put his kingdom subservient to the kingdom that they're asking for because that kingdom is an oppressive, enslaving kingdom. And I want to remind us that they come by this honestly, right? Their objection that Samuel's sons don't walk in his ways, his sons are going after dishonest game. They're accepting bribes. They're perverting justice. They're perverting mishpat. It's not like they, they're not facing something that's really terrible. That's not something that they want either. They're coming by it honestly. And yet at the same time, even as they grapple with that, their desires are reflecting a way to settle with that rejection of that type of leadership in the logic of the kingdoms around them, in the same kind of logic. We want a king who will go out before us and fight our battles. In other words, we don't want to be slaves to other nations. And Samuel says, but you'll be slaves to your king. We want a king. Dear friends, how deeply we need to grapple with how our desires are undoing us. We can relate to the Israelites, right? We want to have a healthy, thriving earth, or at least some kind of limits for how the devastation of climate change is happening. But then we also want 70-degree buildings in the summer and in the winter. We want coffee in the morning and strawberries in December. We want to live in one place and have convenient access to everywhere else that requires us to drive independently owned vehicles. Including, you know, I drive 30 minutes each way to be part of a very life-giving church, right? It's complicated, these desires that we're holding together and how we go about meeting those desires. We long for deep community and connection, and yet we keep, continue to cling to our individual autonomy that we organize our lives so that what you decide to do doesn't create too many limits or demands upon me to protect myself from that. We choose and we are entangled, both of those things, in kingdoms of this world that lead us into self-destruction of ourselves, of each other, of the creation around us. And we come by it honestly. We protect ourselves from one fear, only to find ourselves enslaved to another. Dear friends, how deeply we need to grapple with the reality of how our desires are undoing us. But ungrate your teeth, unclench your fists, rest your dug in heels, because beloved, let's begin by receiving the generous love of God poured out in the midst of our self-destruction. Love that carries us into the abundant goodness of the kingdom of God and discern together how we can participate in this new creation we're being born into. It's very easy for us to jump into toxic shame or toxic guilt when we're reflecting on all these complicated ways we're, we're choosing to lean into the, into the world. We can blame ourselves, we can blame others, we can call out ourselves so that we'll change our behavior. But I love this juxtaposition that Dr. Gaffney, when she put this lectionary together, that she put this Matthew 8 text with this 1 Samuel text. Because we see in this Matthew 8 text, this is the parable of, that, that Jesus is telling about this generous landowner, right? 
this is in a context of where Jesus has been transfigured and he's on his way now to Jerusalem and to the cross and he keeps trying to tell the disciples, I'm going to die. This is, this is how God's carrying out the kingdom. This is how this kingdom's going to unroll. And this is what his kingdom's going to be like. And it is so unexpected and so different than what they can imagine. And so this parable is in the midst of all of these different metaphors and analogies and parables Jesus is telling about what the kingdom of God is like. And in this story, Jesus tells about this landowner who goes out and hires someone at the beginning of the day and says, I'm going to pay you a denarius, and okay, and then goes out a little later, I'll pay you a denarius too, throughout the day, right? Three, uh, nine o'clock, 12 o'clock, three o'clock, five o'clock, finally five o'clock, everyone's getting a denarius. And, and the people are kind of indignant about it. And I mean, I find that in myself too, like, that is so unfair. What? All these people, they didn't even do the same amount of work. So we find ourselves with that same reaction that Jesus' listeners are having. We feel that in our bones too. But I think this story emphasizes something really beautiful about the logic of the kingdom of God. Because in this story, it's not as though the landowner decided at the beginning of the day, here's the amount of work I need to get done, so I'm going to make sure that in order to maximize my profit, I'm going to hire these amount of people, and then at this time, I'm going to make sure I you know, don't pay these people as much. No. We, we've been talking and learning about, especially as we've talked about mammon, the economy of the time, that these people are coming to find work because they have no food. They don't have bank accounts. Maybe they have farms that aren't producing. They're coming to be hired so they can give bread to their kids. And the landowner doesn't come saying, how can I maximize my profit? He comes at 9 o'clock and he hires them, not because he's like, oh, I, I actually do need two more workers. I just didn't plan that well. He comes because they did, they're idle. They didn't have anything to do. And he says, I'll pay you a denarius. And then at noon, he does the same thing. Oh, you, you don't have anything to do, too. You're not going to eat if you don't come and work. I'll pay you a denarius, too, and then at three and at five. And so then, at the end of the day, we see that this landowner isn't concerned about how he's maximizing his profit. He's concerned about caring for these people. And it really struck me, this, this question that the landowner asks, because in the translation, Dr. Gaffney says, um, your eyes are... Is it that your eyes are envious because I'm generous? But the words in that text are, are your eyes bad or evil? Are your ophthalmos paniros? Because I am good. Because I'm agathos. Are your eyes paniros because I'm agathos? And eyes in the ancient world are such a powerful thing. The eyes are so much. I think about that, that verse where Jesus says, um, the eyes are the lamp of the body. For the ancient people, the eyes are revealing something deep and core about an individual person. And so to say, are your eyes evil because I'm good is to say, the core of what you're embodying here is so completely different than goodness. So we see in this text that there is this goodness and this care that the landowner is pouring out. So beloved, as we grapple with these desires, let's hold it with that care and generosity, beginning by receiving this logic, the generous love of God, as we grapple together. What would it look like to own that our desires contribute to destroying people, destroying creation, destroying ourselves, but to do it as a people who are full of mercy and grace. 
We know that God already sees our desires, our fears, our choices, our entanglement, and that he sees us asking for a king constantly. He's already bearing all of these things with such deep love and patience. I wonder if we could even imagine the depth within our own selves and in our world of how much that God is bearing with. And yet, in goodness and in generosity and patience and love. You know, in, our, in this community, we have done some heavy grappling over the last few years. We've grappled with racism and white supremacy and continue to do that. With how the politics of our country and of our culture are so adverse to the politics of Jesus. We've, we've been grappling with mammon. How does mammon uh, serve as a, a logic and a, and a force in our lives? What would it look like for us to continue grappling with these things, with these kingdoms, as people of long-suffering and self-sacrifice? So as we reflect on the good news today, I want to invite us to respond in a few ways as we sit with those questions. First, if something has come to mind for you as an area that you either personally feel like is something that is asking for a king, something that you personally feel like you need to grapple with, or something that our church or our society needs to continue to grapple with, I want to invite us to hold that out in an imaginative way this morning. So if you're here for like two minutes, <laughs> you're quickly going to see how important this table is in our, in our life, that we are a church that doesn't just see us coming for Eucharist, us coming to the table as... Um, let me just remember and kind of like get reoriented, have my attitude changed. But that we in faith, um, we, we affirm that in faith we are receiving a nourishment from God that is as, as nourishing as eating food feeds our souls. But that there is something that is happening in us, in our bodies, in our whole beings, individually and as, and as a body. And so as we come into that space today, knowing that God is meeting us and that God is doing something transformational, mysteriously transformational in us, I would invite, we, we usually um, hold out our hands, our open hands, knowing that we're receiving. I would invite, if you have something in mind that you feel burdened about grappling with or that you have been grappling with, to envision that being in your hands and holding that out to God and knowing that when the bread and the wine come to you, that God is meeting you in that thing that you are holding out. That God already sees and already knows and already is inviting us to grapple with in our community. So that's one, one invitation for response. Another thing is I want to um, invite us to continue to press back against the individualism that so deeply um, shapes us as people and ask us how do we grapple together because we are part of a body and we are part of a kingdom I thought about the, the verse from Revelation a lot this week the multitude around the throne we are part of a multitude and so how do we grapple with the multitude in participating in the kingdom of God not as individual people there are both the both of those are important but as an, as an individualized culture, how do we grapple together? So a couple of things I, I thought about is, you know, sometimes we hold on to our grapplings very preciously for lots of reasons. They're very precious to us. 
And I'm guilty of this, and I, you know, for lots of reasons. So <laughs> how do we say, I'm not the only one in this church who is grappling with this? How do I have conversations? If there is something you feel like you're, you want to grapple with, I invite you this week to find one person who's part of the table to share it with. And you may already be having these conversations. Keep on that. But especially for those of us who maybe have something that we've kind of been holding on to, share it with one person. On the other side of that, we say a prayer of response, a liturgical response, um, almost every week here at the table. And there's an opportunity for us to call out and name what it is. This morning, there will be an opportunity to name what it is that we, that we feel like we want to grapple with. So here's the other part of that invitation. First, if you have something, share it with someone. Secondly, if you hear someone share something, maybe take them, and, and it resonates with you, maybe take a moment after or in another conversation to say, yes, that resonates with me. I want to grapple with that too. Um, I think sometimes I've noticed, like, when we're doing this prayer, you hear someone say something, and you're like, oh, they took mine. <laughs> like, I was going to say that, so now I'm not going to say it. Let's not do that. Me too, right? Like, we are together in our grapplings. We're not the only one who has that grappling, and there is something about how the Spirit is stirring things up in our community because we say, me too. So I would invite you, if you hear someone share something, hey, you could repeat the prayer. <laughs> like, that never happens <laughs> if that resonates with you. But also, just to invite each other into what it is that is stirring in us. And then lastly, I would, I would say, especially as we go to fall, it becomes this whole season of, like, the church activities, relaunch, school relaunches. And, you know, there, there will be some of that. Like, DNA groups will probably start up. Table groups will get back into the rhythm. All of those things. I would invite us to make those things a priority. If, you know, if you've been, like, thinking, maybe do I want to do DNA? Maybe not. Do I want to do a table group? Like, let's take some steps to be part of those things so that we can have those conversations together. We can discern together. And it's a cost for all of us, right? Like, we're all busy. We live far away from each other, so many of us. It's a cost. But let's have conversations about how we can make this happen for us to be bound together and for us to grapple together. Beloved, let's receive the generous love of God this morning poured out into us as we grapple together. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.